Amen. We're turning to Ecclesiastes chapter, chapter 5. We're reading verses 8 through 9 this morning. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 8 and 9. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we, we pray and ask that they might be gracious to us this morning and that, Lord, that you might remove whatever distractions may be in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, help us to focus on your word, to focus on what you have to teach us and help us to rightly apply your word this morning. Speak to us, God. These are your words. These are not mine. So help us to look to you, to speak to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certainly some people who just have a general distrust of others. For some, it's probably sort of a a defense mechanism. I'd rather not trust anyone or put my hope in anything so that I sort of might protect myself from disappointment or discouragement. Perhaps you've come across people like that. Perhaps you were someone, you was someone like that before. And for some, that might be coming from a negative experience, all it takes is one broken promise or one dashed hope to turn the most optimistic person into the most negative or pessimistic or distrusting person. We've all been there, have trusted in something, and then it failed to deliver, had promises broken, commitments never followed through. We put our trust in things or people and systems. We expect that we will put our effort into something or do this or that or that, and then come to find out, well, it's, it fails to deliver. It fails to deliver on the promises or the guarantees. Now, unfortunately, right, that this sort of the reality of human experience We've all been disappointed at some level, some more than others. Uh, it's not the best thing for anybody to not trust, be trustful of anyone. I mean, if we didn't trust anybody, if everybody here never trusted anybody, that would make for a really difficult and hard life. So we continue to go through the book of Ecclesiastes. The author continues to 
sort of put before us things that we may not really want to talk about or things that we may not really want to think about, these hard truths, these harsh realities that are difficult for us to stomach. There are some things that we would rather just not think about and just kind of move on with our lives, but God and His Word, if you follow the Word, if you read the Word attentively and closely and read it regularly, there are some things that you're forced to think about because the Bible doesn't sort of avoid those things. And Ecclesiastes is one of those books that it sort of seems to be sort of unrelenting when it comes to bringing before us things that we may not want to really think about. But you and I read it differently, or we should, because we have something that the teacher didn't have in his time, right? and that is the hope of the gospel of Christ. I do wonder what the book of Ecclesiastes would have been like, how differently might it have been written if the teacher, if King Solomon had written it, say, if he had lived, say, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we're sort of in a privileged position because we can read a lot of the hard things in the book of Ecclesiastes, and as we go through it with the lens of the gospel in mind, we can sort of write sort of our own commentary, say, on the book of Ecclesiastes. Yes, this is what it says, this is what it teaches, this is hard. However, this is how we can think about these things, knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's helpful for us as we sort of try to look past some of the difficult things in the book to see something, something much better that's there. So the book, or this particular passage, begins first with corrupt kingdoms. Now this passage, this particular passage, sits in a, in a specific context that I think deals with attitudes towards wealth and honor. If you continue reading to the end of the chapter and even into chapter 6, that seems to be sort of a... a a particular theme. Now think verses 8 and 9 sort of rest in that same theme of wealth and honor and the attitudes towards those things. But it's dealing specifically with the topic of injustice and the violation of righteousness. So back in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we already sort of spoke about injustice but that was sort of neighborly injustice. That was sort of close relationship injustice. Now, here in chapter 5, we're talking about a much broader form of injustice, governmental injustice, tyrannical injustice. But as we think about these things, and tyranny, and oppression of the weak, and the exploitation of the defenseless, must also consider that if there is a problem of injustice in the world, if there is a problem of, the, of a miscarriage of justice or a denial of justice or the exploitation of the poor and the weak and the defenseless, yes, it is a problem of systems, but the systems itself are just symptoms of a much greater problem, and the greater problem is people. 
It is those who are tasked or sit in positions of authority to execute judgment and righteousness and justice. Societal or horizontal injustice is a symptom of a much bigger problem, and that is people and the sin that permeates the human heart. Sin is always the problem. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Sick because of sin. In Romans chapter 1, it tells us that man knows who God is, that inside of him, deep in his heart, he understands that there is a God, that God created the world, but that truth is suppressed in unrighteousness. And later in chapter 3, it tells us that no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. John 3.19 tells us, and this is the judgment, the light, that is Jesus Christ has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Ephesians 4.18 tells us that they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. These passages and many others in the scriptures point to one of the fundamental doctrines or theologies concerning the Christian faith, and that is total depravity. To be totally depraved doesn't mean that people are not able to do good. Certainly, people are able and people do good things. But total depravity speaks to the hearts, the affections, the will, the emotion, the speech, the actions, that everything about man has been corrupted, tainted, polluted by sin. It's like smoke. Smoke always fills an entire room. So sin is also in the human heart. That sin occupies every nook and cranny of the human person. So in considering the context of this attitude of money and wealth and the desire for honor that I think this passage rests in, what exactly does this have to do with the attitude towards money. Well, money or the desire of wealth, the desire of status, the desire of material possessions is what drives many people to oppress others and even withhold justice from those who cry out for justice. As many of you know, the Bible warns against the love of money that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, including injustice. When you have sin permeating the hearts of men, and those men stand in places where they have the authority to execute justice, you will always then have broken and corrupt systems. Now, it's not to say that all systems are terrible, or that all systems are wrong, or that all governments or all forms of government are terrible and wrong and corrupt. Some are certainly better than others. But even in the best of governments or forms of governments, right, there is still some corruption. There is still sin. There are still some people who rule, who have a desire for money and status and wealth and care about those things. 
than giving justice to those who cry out for it. Certainly there are miscarriages of justice and denials of justice everywhere you go, even in our own form of government. No form of government is perfect. And even in the best forms of government or in the best forms of or, or any kind of monarch, no matter how good it is, there are always there's always the interpretation of what is just and that interpretation left to man. And when interpretation of justice is left to man without understanding who God is, you have just laws who appear to be, that appear to be just, but are actually unjust. I say, for example, the killing of children in the womb. To many, surely, it appears just, but according to the Bible, it isn't. And we think of any other countries and other forms of government, right? We think of communist China and the oppression of its people through this communist country. We think of North Korea. We think of Russia taking over another sovereign country unprovoked. Cuba, other places. Yes, systems are broken, and such systems lead to the oppression of their own citizens, but they are broken and instit- because they are upheld and instituted by broken men, by sinful man. And as long as man in sin, without Christ, is an instrument or arbiter of justice, then you will always have broken and corrupt systems. And so this is sort of a harsh reality that Ecclesiastes sort of forces us to grapple with. There is a lot of brokenness in the world, and even in the best of systems, there is still some brokenness. And even as we read through the Scriptures, there are examples, and even in the things that God has instituted, there is corruption still. In the very beginning, if you go back to the book of Genesis, we, if you're, some of you are familiar with the, the events of the Tower of Babel, when man, grew, man came together, they said, let us come together, let us make a name for ourselves, let us build a tower up into the heavens. And God thwarted the plan, gave people languages and dispersed them across the world. Their coming together inherently wasn't such a bad thing, but what they were intending to do, they were intending to make much of themselves instead of making much of God. And when you have a group of people coming together to make much of themselves and not make much of God, what you will eventually and certainly end up with, sadly and tragically, is injustice and oppression and even the promotion and the legislation of sin. Another example in 1 Samuel, Eli's, the prophet or prophet priest Eli and his worthless sons. Eli, who was a minister in God's temple, his two sons, who were also ministering in the temple, they were required, they were commanded to minister to the Lord on behalf of the people. When people came and, bring, and brought their offerings to the priests, 
They brought them, they took the offerings and lifted them up to the Lord. And part of their income came from the, from the offerings that came from the people. They were required to take a certain portion, but with these worthless sons, what they ended up doing was actually taking more than what they were required. And not only that, but they were also sleeping with the women who ministered in the tent of tabernacle. And so therefore God wiped them out. And this was a system that God himself created and instituted. So even in the best of system, as even though it's created by God, Corrupted by, corrupted by men, by sinful men, for their own gain, for selfish reasons. In First King, First Kings, we have the example of King Jeroboam, one of many godless and evil kings. In First Kings twelve twenty eight, so the king Jeroboam took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. So here you have a king who didn't want his people to go to Israel, to go to Jerusalem, to worship at the temple because he was afraid of losing his people to another king. And so what did he do? He instituted his own temples. He instituted his own gods. These are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And so in this thing, in this thing he, he led his entire people to pagan and idolatrous worship and sinning against the Lord. Corruption in the human heart leads to the corruption of any system, no matter how good and great it might be. So then, what is the point? What is the point? Now, the point is not, right, to overthrow government. Romans chapter 13 tells us about how we as Christians are commanded to submit to governing authorities and, of course, not to the disobedience of God. And unfortunately, there are many people in many places in the world that do not have the luxury of living in a government that they can sort of submit to. There are oppressive forms of rule. There is tyranny. This passage shows us that there is corrupt high officials and ones even above those and the ones that are higher still. And the teacher's imperative for us, according to the word, is don't be amazed. Don't be amazed. Now, in one sense, we should praise God. We should praise God when the weak are defended. We should praise God when governments are functioning as they are supposed to do. We should praise God when criminals are apprehended and sentenced according to the law. We should praise God when people are treated fairly according to the law. That is what the government is for. That is why God instituted them in the first place. Now, in another sense, we should be outraged. We should be outraged when there is, there is the exploitation of the weak. 
we should have a righteous anger when criminals are set free. And they don't receive the sentence that they deserve according to the law. We should be outraged when people are treated unfairly. unfairly, And justice becomes sort of this luxury that people cannot afford. And yet, in another sense, we shouldn't be amazed. And why is that? Because we live in a fallen world. Because we live in a world that is filled with sin. It is not that we should expect all men to be evil. But when we do see and read and hear of evil happening, it is not this amazing thing to us as if it's something unexpected. Because the Bible teaches us what the human heart is like. And this is what the world is like apart from God. The passage continues. The passage points us to corrupt kingdoms, but also points us to a king committed to the land. Verse 9 again reads, But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. I think a good way to understand this is a king subservient to the field, a king who is committed to his land. In other words, it is in the king's best interest that his land prospers and flourishes and produces, even if that king is a greedy king and loves money and is willing to exploit anyone and everyone for personal gain. In a way, the teacher is not ashamed and presenting to us realities that are difficult to face and difficult for us to stomach. And what he seems to be saying, as difficult as it might be to really accept, is that you might have corrupt officials and those who oversee them who are also corrupt and those who oversee them who are also corrupt. But this is still better in the opposite extreme, which might be anarchy. This way he's saying it is better to have corrupt officials, it is better to have corrupt kings, it is better to have tyranny than anarchy. Of course, we don't want either of those things. But we're hearing from the teacher who has considered these things, who has considered the evils of the world, who who has seen injustice, who has seen wickedness, and has come to the conclusion The world is evil. Tyranny is awful. But if I were to have, in a world where there are sometimes we have to make choices between the lesser of two evils, he's saying, I'd rather have tyranny than anarchy. Better is a tyrannical king than having a king, than having no king at all, and everybody, without exception, doing whatever is right in their own eyes. As we continue to think about the book of Ecclesiastes, and I want to continue to remind you that this book helps to see, helps us to see the vanity of the secular life, the life that is, of, that is void from God, the life that does not worship Jesus Christ. That, that kind of life, every single life, every single person, you, I mean, you can choose to disregard it or to ignore it, 
but everyone has to come to wrestle with the question of corruption and evil and wickedness in the world and the lust for power and greed. And the secular person, the person who does not know God, that does not fear God or follow God, how might a person explain away the injustice and the cruelty that happens in the world They will probably try to blame it on upbringing? Well, the reason why this person is the way that they are is because of their upbringing. That terrible parents, they were abused. And to some degree, yes, certainly, terrible upbringing can breed terrible people. But that's not always the case, is it? You might have great upbringing. You might have wonderful parents and the person, the child still might end up being a wicked person. And I try to explain evil away by saying that it is perhaps selfishness, and it is. Or they might even go so far, and it is true, and it is an argument today that, it might, that they will even go so far as to say that it is a mental illness. The reason why this person is as evil as they are and they do the wicked things they do is because they must have some kind of mental disorder. And that might be true for some, but not for everyone. They will even so, so far to tell you that people are inherently good. But the Bible actually tells us that's not true at all. The secular person, when you ask what might be the remedy for evil in the world, they might say, well, evil can be cured through counseling. All they need is professional help. They need therapy. Perhaps medication will cure the evil in man. And some of those things might be helpful, but we know in our hearts that that's actually not true. Those methods cannot cure evil in the human heart And the Bible teaches us that there is no cure for human evil aside from regeneration, aside from a complete transformation. There is no transformation apart from a conversion, what the Bible calls being born again, that you cannot be cured of any evil in your heart unless you actually are born again through faith in Jesus Christ. That is what is required Aside from this, there is no hope. The person who does not believe in God has no hope of any kind of change in the world. And the, the hope that we have as followers of Christ is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the only thing that can cure the world of its evil. As Christians, right, we have a hope in a king. Not an earthly king, not in one who stands above us or any other, but a king who is above all kings, the king who is Jesus. And this Jesus, this king, is the king who is committed to his people and is the king who is committed to his land. And his land is the world and he's committed to that land because he is the one who created the world. Colossians 1.15 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Isaiah chapter 9 speaks of Christ as king and his government tells us, For to us a child is born, that is Jesus, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And Psalm 2, Psalm 2 speaks to what we're getting at here with kings and oppression and tyrannical rule and the king who stands above all kings. And it deserves to be read in its entirety. Psalm chapter 2 tells us, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. This is the picture of kings, renegade, rebellious kings who want nothing to do with God. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the earth, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, here is the word to all kings, to all presidents, to all those who stand in high positions in the world. It says, now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the sun, or reconcile yourself to the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. There's a warning to all kings everywhere who do not follow God. Reconcile yourself to the Son. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. This is a word to all kings, to all oppressive governments, to all tyrannical leaders. Kiss the Son, lest you perish in the way. Because this King, this Jesus, is committed to His people and He's committed to His land. He's the King who was above all kings. And every other stands far below his kingship. And Romans chapter 8 speaks to Christ's commitment to his people and to his land. It speaks to us of a future glory that awaits God's people when Christ returns, when we behold him face to face. And it is a glory that awaits us when we see Jesus Christ. It tells us about the earth, the world, God's creation had been subjected to futility, that the earth is groaning, it tells us, in the pains of childbirth. Why is that? Because of the sin that is in the world, that it is eager for this day that is coming when itself will be glorified when Christ Jesus, the King of all, above all kings, returns. Not only that, but it tells us that we as believers who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who are no longer dominated by sin, but are in the process of conquering sin in our lives, that we also wait eagerly for Christ to return, that we also groan inwardly 
as we wait for our adoption to be complete. The papers have been filled out. The courts have declared that we belong to God, and all we wait for now is for Christ to return and take us up to be with our Heavenly Father. There will one day be this incredible glorification when Christ the King returns. And we can expect Him to return because the Bible tells us so, and because He is a King who is committed to you and I and committed to His land. The goodness of the life that is lived in Christ and for Christ is that it has this guaranteed hope that is coming. And until that hope is realized, we wait and we continue to trust. We continue to trust in Christ. We can and we should be outraged and amazed at human sin in the world. And yet not so surprised or so taken aback by it as if it's something strange. Now while this passage speaks specifically to the problem of corrupt justice and systems in the world broadly, but if I may, let me sort of bring it a little bit closer to home on a more personal level, right? Because we have also a tendency to trust in our own systems or different systems of our own making, even those that might actually be good. Our ultimate hope should never be in human courts or human justice, though we should always expect there to be justice in the world or justice to be served on the behalf of the weak and the innocent. But when it comes to our own perhaps personal systems that we might put a lot of trust in, let us remember that we must first and foremost, above all things, trust in Christ and not in anything else. We must not trust in our own parenting. We must not trust in our own good works. We must not trust in our being a good neighbor or a good employee. We must not trust in our own church going or in our giving. We must not even trust in our daily devotions. These are all things in good, and I'm not saying that we should get rid of all these things because we have a tendency to trust in those things because these things help us, actually, to strive after God, to draw closer to the Lord. But these things and more can become our own systems. They can become rhythms, liturgies, habits that we turn into standards by which we measure ourselves and see how we are standing with regards to our personal righteousness and our relationship with Christ. We have a tendency to trust in these things and have a confidence in ourselves. Well, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing these things, I'm helpful in this way. And that is how I know that I'm good. But we must first and foremost trust in Christ for our personal righteousness. Jesus Christ in the Gospels, when he's speaking to the Pharisees, he calls them hypocrites because he says that they're, they're, they honor God with their lips and they worship God, but 
their hearts are far removed from God. Here are men who have trusted in their own systems of good works. They think that they have this place of, of, of having this, they think they have this place that is reserved for them right next to God. That if I do these things, that if I say these things, I know that I am saved. But Jesus says, your heart is far removed from God. And sometimes we have a tendency to do the right things. But our hearts aren't always after God, are they? So we must remember that our hearts matter more. It's not that these things don't matter. But God wants our hearts to be near. He wants us to draw near to him, trusting in Christ. Not trusting in our own works, but trusting in the work of Christ. So then how do we keep ourselves from trusting in our own systems instead of trusting in Christ? First, admit that you are capable of doing that, of trusting in systems or your rhythms or your liturgies instead of trusting more in Jesus Christ. Every one of us has a tendency to do those things. And I know this because pride resides in every single human heart. Even for us as believers, there's still sort of this remaining stain of pride when it comes out at times. And as human beings, we want to work out our own righteousness. We want to feel good about ourselves. And so we will want to do the right things to sort of guarantee ourselves that we are in right standing with God. But the Bible tells us, no, you must first trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Second, while we should be outraged by the sin in the world and have a righteous anger towards the world, how do you feel towards your own personal sins? Are you grieved by your own personal sins? Are you angered by your personal sins? The idea here is that we should not accept our sins as normative. We should not be apathetic towards our sins. We should not sort of adopt this defeatist mentality of saying, well, this is just the way that I am. I keep struggling with this. Maybe this is sort of my thorn in the flesh. And God, for whatever reason, has not taken this from me. Maybe I should just accept it as the way that I am. But I don't think that's the case at all. Because that runs contrary to what the New Testament teaches you about who you are in Jesus Christ. When you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are born again. That you are no longer a slave to sin. That you are no longer dominated by sin. That in Christ Jesus you have a freedom that you did not have before apart from Christ. So when it comes to our personal sins, let us be grieved by our own sins and let us also with that grief run to Christ. And lastly, be, be amazed continually. Be amazed always by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be amazed that there is a God who has come down from heaven 
condescended to us, came into the darkness of the world, came into the sin-drenched world, and lived as a human being, understands the, the temptations that you and I go through, perhaps on a daily basis, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who went to the cross to die for your sins and mine and rose again from the dead so that we might have forgiveness of sins and so that we might have his righteousness. The gospel is not something to take lightly. The gospel is the greatest treasure that you have. So be always amazed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be amazed by the incomprehensible grace that is always there for you to tap into. Be amazed by the pardoning of sin. The Bible tells us that if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's in 1 John. And in that passage, it doesn't say anything about limits there. It doesn't say if you confess your sins, that Christ is able to forgive you your sins a certain number of times. No, it doesn't, there's no limit there because there is no limit to the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That as many times as you come to Jesus Christ, grieving over your sins, in confession of your sins, Christ Jesus will forgive you every single time. Be amazed by the gospel of Christ. Be amazed that you have a God King who is committed to you, to your personal well-being, to your personal welfare, who cares for you, who loves you. Be amazed that you have a God King who will one day come back and we will renew all things and restore all things and make a whole new world. You have a king who is committed to you, committed to the world, and we also have a king who is committed to his church. Christ Jesus, the king, is committed to the preservation of his church. It is why the Bible tells us that the gates of hell shall never prevail against his church. It's not because we ascribe to a certain set of systems. It's because Christ Jesus is with his church, who is his bride. And he will not let anything come against his church. It is the reason why the church continues to thrive even in oppressive places in the world. It is the reason why the church continues to grow in China. It is the reason why the church continues to grow in Iran. Did you know that in Iran, 20 years ago, the number of believers that came from Muslim backgrounds and then converted to Christianity was between five to 10,000. Now, today, that number has swelled up to 800,000 to, 800, to a million people. Why is that? Because Christ Jesus is committed to the preservation, to the survival and the thriving of his church. Even when you have oppressive governments, even when you have a country like Iran, that is, a, it is it's theocratic, Right, that, it, that, it's, that institutes the, the worship of a God, a God that we do not worship. And even in that place, the church of Christ is still growing because Christ Jesus is committed to his people. And that is the king that we serve. He is committed to us. He's committed to his creation. He's committed to his church. And in his commitment, his promise to us in his word that one day he will return, that he will come again. 
and all rulers who do not worship him will be destroyed in his fury. And what will remain are his people and a new world under the kingship of Jesus Christ. So we long for that day. We pray for that day. And until that day comes, we continue to trust in Christ and continue to run after him. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, we are so thankful that you are a king who is committed to his people. Lord, we need to only read the newspaper to read about how there are many rulers and governing authorities that are not committed to their people, but actually are against their own people and are against life, that are against freedom, that are even against justice. And God, it is so easy to become just so, so discouraged. It would appear as if the world only gets darker. But we thank you, Lord, because evil is not something that is running rampant. You are a sovereign God. You are the King of kings. And you are ultimately in control. And in that we have hope. And we have hope that you will return. And we have hope that you will glorify us. And we have hope that you will glorify the world. So help us, God, to look for that day. As we read these headlines, Lord, as we look at what's happening in the world, may we be grieved. May we not be so surprised that this was something strange happening. May we pray, but may we also remember that we have a king who stands above all kings who will one day return. Help us to look to you, Jesus. Help us to be encouraged. And we pray that you would continue your good work in the world, in your church. Keep your church. Preserve your church. Cause her to continue to thrive no matter what is going on in the world. And we thank you, Lord, for the ways that you are working, even in this very moment. Cause your church to continue to grow. And we pray that your will would be done and that your kingdom would come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.